Welcome to Vitals, where we check in on the most important topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on interoperability for whole person care. Joining us are Arcadian's Brendan Smith-Ellian, VP of Product Management, Jonathan Cook, Chief Technology Officer, along with Elise Cole Grant, the former CIO from IMSNY, and now the Healthcare Engagement Advisor in the Compliance Division at AWS. Together, they're gonna to cover the technical and non-technical challenges providers face operating across silos, the current barriers to interrupt for complex use cases, how to implement pragmatic strategies for pushing actionable insights to the point of care, and how to deliver those insights, drive behavior, and measure and manage progress. Brendan, I'm gonna hand it over to you to get the conversation started. It's awesome, thanks Mike, I appreciate the intro. Well, um, great to talk to everybody. I'm really excited to talk to you, JC, and really about this topic. I know we've uh, chatted about this in the past. Um, Fire is this really amazing bit of technological transformation in healthcare. And we're just at that peak of, of the hype curve. We're all really excited about what it can do, how it can change healthcare. Uh, but some of us are starting to scream <laughs> as we kind of rocket down uh, to this trough of disillusionment. Um, and understand the real limitations of the technology and the parts about clinical workflow and clinical interoperability that it really brings up, the challenges in getting uh, a cross-functional, very dispersed care team to work on one patient, on a whole person. Um, so there's a lot of excitement, a lot of interest, a lot of investment, um, but you need to be really careful with your investment and focus on use cases, focus on outcomes to really achieve what you want to do with whole person care. Um, so we're going to talk about all that. Um, I think uh, just to, to highlight, um, JC has a ton of interoperability knowledge um, from many decades in healthcare. Um, I've been in healthcare for a couple decades, um, working, uh, started off working on DICOM and HL7 uh, V2, just as that hype curve was starting to crash down. Um, and I know at least uh, the same is true for you, and you have a lot of really great experience uh, in the healthcare space, getting clinicians to work on one patient, to think about the whole patient. Um, so we're gonna get a great set of perspectives here today. Um, so JC, let's start with you. Um, I know you've talked a lot about what FIRE does and, and how we can think of it um, as a technology, what it unlocks, all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, Brendan, I mean, you go back to the history, uh, you talk about DICOM and CCDs. Uh, didn't we solve it back then? What's this conversation? Oh, about? yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we're doing solving uh, Very done. Yeah, CCDs 20 years ago, I remember them being solving everything. Um, first off, lots of excitement in the market, um, lots of excitement, uh, hymns floors. Uh, we go out on sales calls or consulting the clients. Um, you know, it's, fire, fire, fire all over the place we're seeing. Uh, one, I just want to pause and thank you, Graham, the inventor of fire for getting us out of the XML age and allowing us to be able to pull back the resources we want, not a document that is 15 megabytes uh, in XML. Uh, so that's huge step forward. Um, the other thing is, is it's restful. It literally is an internet standard that <laughs> most techies understand. So. Uh, you know, it's HTTPS or TLS, however you want to call it, which is fantastic. Um, and again, like I said, you'll be able to really narrow into what resources you need when you need them, right? Um, but Brendan, like before I get into like really the hype versus the reality, I just want to pause for one second 
and just stop and go re rethread us or re re um, baseline us on interoperability, right? So, <clears throat> you know, taking a paraphrase of what HL7 and HIMS thinks of as interoperability, it's like four layers, right? You've got your foundational layer and um, the analogy I use, Brendan, you know, you hear it all the time walking with me is I'm like, I use an envelope and a letter. I got a, I got a letter, I got to get the Brendan. I got to get something over there. I'm trying to send something somewhere, right? And there's many ways of doing that. And so when I think of the four layers of interoperability, I think of foundational, it's like, I have to be able to get a letter somewhere, right? And then there's structural, right? Which is basically, you know, can you read what I've written? Is it written in a way that you know? Is the, is, are the letters going from left to right, right to left, top to bottom? You know, am I writing in Arabic when you're expecting English? Um, is it, you know, is it, in an address format that the mail knows even how to get to you, right? And then there's semantic, which quite often we, we talk about, which is, does my word equal your word in the letter, right? What's your definition of is? What's your definition of the, right? And you, you take the semantic part, which we can really stub our toe on as well, even in these formats. And then last, which a lot of people forget about, which is the governance, policy, and legal aspects, right? So. You know, who's allowed to see the letter? Brendan, are you allowed to see the whole letter or just a part of the letter? How do I secure the letter? And <clears throat> how long do I hold the letter? How do I get access to the letter? All these things. So th those four layers are really, really important to think of because quite often we go, fire, it's Jason, it's restful, it's awesome. You got to back up for a second and look at what you're trying to do with interop. And then, and then going forward, Brendan, you know, fire is really really the right way forward but at the same time there's limitations and this is a caution note i am not a fire extinguisher first fire pun of the webinar <laughs> um, um, there's limit limitations and adoption problems across the network right there is a major ehr i won't name any names that is one of the biggest ehrs in new england area i mean they're all over the us but they're huge in england uh, um, new england they don't even have fire capability. And we go in the networks here at Arcadia where we'll have, you know, we'll have somewhere between 25 and 50 different sources. And, you know, a quarter of those will be this EHR. There is no fire capability still to today on this EHR, right? It's a major EHR, you all would know the name. So there's limitations, adoption. I'll get into later, um, Brendan, more around, even if the EHR supports it, you know, what does that mean? You know, and the other thing I just want to point out is you walk around HIMS floor, everything's on fire, right? It's fire, fire, fire. And, you know, it's, there is a lot of hype around this. And I think it's super, super important to remember, like here at Arcadia, we work with massive amounts of data. Our typical client is multiple sources in the dozens or more. One of our largest clients had over 400 sources, different sources we had to connect. And... You know, we, in the last couple of years, we've done over 2,000 different source connections. Fire is a minute amount of those connections because of the availability of the capability. It's going to get better, but this is a cautionary note to anyone thinking that fire is going to basically solve your problems today. I wish it would because it would make my life so much easier, but there's a lot still that has to evolve and mature in, in, um, uh, in the market and in the healthcare space. Um, 
And I think also you got to think about, Brendan, is your use cases. You and I talk about this every day, right? You know, us technologists, guilty, right? Guilty of going, oh, there's a cool spec. We got the spec. Let's rock and roll. Let's go. But, you know, you got to start from your use case. And, in, and if you're working in population health or whole person care, it's quite often that you want other things other than just the USCDI, right? You're going to want... Um, the ability to do risk adjustments and be able to get that data back to point of care. You know, you're going to want to be able to drive additional insights, quality gaps back to point of care. And is your fire server and is your mapping actually have that defined? Like in the case of risk, Brendan, you and I know, there is no definition that will map to expected risk in fire currently, right? So how do I get that back? Well, the answer always is use an extension. Extension is just a fancy word for customization. You got to do mapping. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, do it folks. But at the same time, just remember that the stand, you're gonna still have some work to do on extensions. And does your extension match my extension? We've run that into that with EHR companies as well. And I think, you know, basically, Brendan, taking this into, you know, USCDI and the, the Cures Act, um, it's really, really great though, because it's like, we're, we're starting to knock down the doors of data blocking, uh, which is a great start. Uh, but it's still focusing really on the encounter medical record, right? Which is great start. But the encounter-based medical record isn't a whole person aggregate, right? Like if you're trying to do analytics, you're gonna wanna be able to get data across a network and be able to stitch that together. And there's some things that we need to worry about. You know, if you know, how am I gonna manage my risk contract? Um, how am I going to do analytics across my network? How am I going to get my measure calculations and get them back into the point of care? And is FIRE, particularly USCDI, going to solve that? The answer is no. <clears throat> Doesn't mean FIRE can't solve it, but I'm just letting you know that um, that basically that it's not a silver bullet out of the box. You're going to have to do some work and think this through. Sure. We talked about the hype curve and like my MBA mind goes crazy and wants to just jump in with the hype curve. You know, we mentioned we're at the peak or maybe we're just like over the peak and now we're starting to slope down to where we actually have to do the actual work. And with the hype curve, then it eventually plateaus and then we get something else to get really excited about and it goes on and on. Um, with fire, I do have to agree with you that I think we're now at the peak or just over where we're really starting to do the work now. And you mentioned a letter and I can't help but think like, you know, sending a letter ba back and forth is really sort of bi-directional that bi-directional exchange where we are now pretty good at sending and receiving medical information in that CCDA format. Um, and I think where we're headed is we're starting to just get to the tip of the iceberg where we're collecting some of the SDOH data, the um, social determinants of health data, right? Um, but we are not yet there yet. Now with like the new USCDI um, functionality coming out where we're starting to bring in um, SDOH assessments into that standard data set, I think that really creates some possibilities of some more bi-directional exchange. But when we're talking about a letter, I can't help but think like we have to get to the point where we need that Google 
dock, right? Where we can start to insert and it's more than just a bi-directional exchange, but it's a continuum of information that's flowing in a cycle, especially, you know, I come from the behavioral health field where um, we deal with primary uh, individuals on primarily Medicaid and Medicare um, with severe mental illness and the diagnosis that comes out of the treatment, the interventions that they need, they really need to be at that point of care and to get the information at the point of their fingertips in order to respond. Um, but we know that there's a lot of issues when it comes to not just the technical aspects, but actually receiving and retrieving the information in the environment that providers are used to, right? You mentioned that big EHR. Um, a lot of our behavioral, more community-based uh, providers are not using those big H EHRs. They're using smaller EHRs. Many of them may be ONC certified, but some of them not, right? And now we're seeing a new ecosystem of referral um, of referral systems and social platforms coming up, which is really great and exciting um, for the economy. But in, in, in many ways, I wonder if also um, it further, um, eh, it further blocks the data, right? Because now we're creating many data silos, especially for like patients that need this information and providers that need this information on their, yeah. on their patients the most. Yeah, at least I think you bring up two good points that I want to emphasize is one, just because you have a standard resource defined in a fire schema does not mean the data lives where you need it, nor was it captured. So you yeah. can be looking at a definition of a fire resource that does not mean it was captured. And for anyone who's ever worked with EHRs, um, you know, you look at something um, like uh, smoking sensation or flu shots kind of as an example, right? Well, where do people stick those? You know, hey, are you a smoker or did you get your flu shot? I've seen cases where that is placed in 20 different places in one EHR. So you think about data going spread across an EHR, how is that being mapped out to your schemas, even if you have the schema, right? And then you look yeah. at things like uh, ethnicity and race, which exist in the schema. But if you look at the data coming out of EHRs, how often is that data actually populated. We know the new versions of FIRE are going to have SOGI, you know, basically gender identification and uh, orientation, and that doesn't mean the data is going to be captured, right? And yeah. then more yeah. so, one of the things that you said that's really, really important is that you start getting out to these specialists or these different smaller groups. Do they have the technical capability or are they even wired in? Right? Are you going to get the data that you need? And that brings me to something that I, Brandon and I talk about all the time is that don't start with the schema of anything. We're talking about fire here today, but whatever. Start with what is my use case? What am I trying to solve? And then what data am I going to need in order to be able to solve or address that? What is the frequency of that data? What is the scale of that data? How am I going to manage that data? And then start mapping that out to see if it even exists. You know, for yeah. those of us that are old enough that remember CCDs that were going to solve everything and HIEs that were going to give us everything that we ever wanted. Um, if you've worked with HIEs, you can see a lot of data quality issues. With CCDs, you can see a lot of data is missing or it gets put in non-machine readable format that a machine can't make sense of. 
right? So yeah. we just have to be careful of that, of thinking that fire is gonna solve all these problems that weren't solved in a previous format. Um, it's getting us closer and there's a lot better opportunity here, but at the same time, there are still some of the existing gotchas. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wanna to touch on a few things you mentioned is uh, there's a huge incentive now to look at health equity or health inequities. And you mentioned race as being one of them. And a lot of the providers I work with have a hard time capturing race. I mean, I was talking to a provider in California, right? And there was this individual, Jose, who, um, you know, a, just recently crossed the border from Mexico and he didn't want to share that he was Mexican because imagine, you know, he had just gotten there um, to California three days before, found a resource center, lost his uh, one-year-old and yeah. his wife in the process of crossing. And he's scared to, you know, share his race. So the barriers reach so much deeper from the technical capacity to be able to capture that information, right? Um, and I think that we have to really look at the workflows that providers have in place now to be able to um, figure out how best to give them the resources and give them the power they need to capture that data. There's that like technology push and a business pool. And I think we've seen that technology push, but it doesn't always satisfy the business pool, which are like the use cases that you yeah. mentioned. Um, I know a lot of our providers, they capture the heart of the information that they have on clients exists in the case notes, right? Um, and that stems back from, that stems back from meaningful use and providers not not all providers were eligible to be part of this government incentive where uh, they received many dollars for meaningful use to enter in information in a particular format so now a lot of our providers still enter information in case notes and it's really hard to decipher where that information should sit when we're transferring it to different um, data sets Elise, yeah. one um, one thing, Elise, I know that we've we've talked about is um, looking at SDOH and prepare information. There's a structured way of presenting that information. There's there's codes that back that um, assessment. Um, but even though the the standard can communicate it, and this becomes important with uh, USCDI v two um, and ACO reach and all the other stuff coming up next year. Um, even though the technical standard can meet that need. Uh, there's a huge amount of variance in the way that that application, that that screener is actually presented to the patient. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Sure. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I was working about uh, over a decade ago, I was working at New York eHealth Collaborative, which is the State Health Information Network of New York. And I remember we were just starting to talk about the prepare assessment. So that's been in place for a while now. Um, and mainly we're talking about it across the medical community. Now, when we're looking at the prepare assessment, we're looking at SDOH factors. Again, many of the providers that cater to those SDOH factors sit outside of that medical community, right? And I was on um, a meeting with over 100 behavioral community-based agencies, and four of them had heard of the PREPARE assessment. Four out of 100. I mean, I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it, right? So, and these are the individuals that these are the providers that see these individuals every day, or if not every day, weekly or monthly, because they give them their housing, they give them their food, they give them their case management and their substance use um, 
programs that they're eligible and that they participate in. And so for four provider agencies to have heard about the prepare assessment, I think there's something lost in translation when we're talking about trying to include these SDOH factors, um, when really um, maybe we're not using or considering the right tools, or maybe we're not getting the education out to the providers or the incentives, I'll be the first to say it, definitely incentives out to the providers to use some of the tools that are available. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it as, uh, to use JC's analogy, it's kind of like getting an Amazon box um, for like dog food, but you don't actually know what's in the, the package of dog food. It could be kibble, it could be grain, it could be, you know, scraps from like a, a fish market, you don't know. Um, but I think that's really important as we start to bring all this data together, just because we have the information, just because it's flowing a lot more freely now, you don't necessarily know the context in which the data was acquired or how it yeah. was aggregated or, or captured with the patient. Um, that's massively important to these cases. And even furthermore is, again, I'm not trying to be a fire extinguisher, but even furthermore, it's just the format, right? So. It does not mean that that entity with that attribute, basically that fire resource with that field yeah. was properly mapped coming out through the API. Don't assume that those are properly mapped. Do your QA on it. We've seen cases where people put the wrong things, wrong IDs in the wrong places, wrong values in yeah. the wrong places. You know, they, they're putting long strings and things that we were expecting something else. Um, yep. You know, so it's don't accept it at you know, blindly make sure that you check that it's working properly, right? <clears throat> yeah. And and Z codes are a really good example of that because they're they could exist in the problem list, it could exist in a couple different places. And the way that you get that data, if you're to query through fire through a fire condition call, um, you may have enough information to determine how that data was captured, but um, you really do need data governance stood up to understand whether or not um, that mapping, as you said, was actually done as expected. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Z codes because that's something that we're working with our provider communities on is leveraging Z codes, but it starts from getting everyone on the same page, right? To figure out, all right, like what Z code do we want to capture? What already exists? And how do we incentivize our providers to capture those one, two, three, four Z codes? A lot of providers like don't bill, right? Especially for those social yeah. programs, they're mainly grant funded. So uh, a lot of them, that's kind of a new thing, a new workflow to learn on top of their already overburdened workflow with, um, um, you know, 60 plus caseloads. And so I think, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of possibilities for Z codes. And I definitely encourage providers to start talking amongst yourself, amongst your network to figure out which Z codes you might want to use, because I think that there's definitely promise. But again, remember that, you know, a lot of providers might not use that functionality. So there's educating we have to do. There's incentivizing that um, we have to do to even get to a place where we can actually run analytics on, you know, those SDOHD codes. And I want to add one more um, 
thing here, which is it's important, right, for providers to work as larger networks. We One thing that we've done with our community of providers is we've created these target tracks, which are these clinical workflows that are built up off of HEDIS measures. So if you look at like a HEDIS measure, right, and you break it down by the clinical workflow and really track every piece of documentation a provider needs to do and then um, layer that workflow on with the data clinical workflow. Um, it's a lot of work, but you realize very quickly that that data workflow comes from multiple sources, which is why it's so important for you know Arcadia to exist because one provider agency doesn't have access to multiple data sources from claims and HIEs and EHRs. Um, and also there's other, you know, personal device data now. Um, so I really encourage, you know, folks to start looking not just at the clinical workflows, but that data workflow to figure out where are there areas that providers can change and where are there areas where other data sources come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to use JC's analogy a little bit more. And, um, just, you know, I think we're, we may seem like we're doing a lot of fire bashing uh, during this call, but um, there's a lot of things that it really helps with and solves. Like if, if you're going to think about that, uh, that package and that, um, that letter analogy, you don't want to ship uh, laundry detergent in a Ziploc bag, right? Like you want to have some predictability in terms of the, the payload and the structure and the information. Um, I think one thing we're just doubling down on is just the need for data governance and mapping and consistency. Um, at least when we think about some of the providers out there today that maybe don't have a certified EHR, that don't have um, you know a fully certified fire layer around uh, their information yet, we're not even talking about a mapping issue. That that information is just completely uh, non-standardized and non-structured. How do you how do you think about managing that information? How do we think about managing that information? Um, oh man, that's a loaded question. Is if you're if you're not using one system, um, it's really hard to be able to centralize the information and run analytics and create predictive analytics and even respond to the patients that need the most help. Um, but then again, one system doesn't meet everyone else's needs. So. Um, it's a hard question to answer, but one thing that I've seen is, you know, the healthcare landscape is, is changing. There's a lot more emphasis on mental health, behavioral health now, and kind of combining and creating these IPAs or these networks of provider agencies to work together and establish um, and leverage the existing standards that exist, but then establish their own processes. So that way, that way you can centralize more data and you can do more things with it and create more structured interventions. And again, of course, like, you know, have some learning collaboratives that are associated to that to help folks like learn from one another. And then, you know, then you'll find yourself at a place where you're probably dealing with multiple data sources and, you know, perhaps like Arcadia will help you further centralize those data sources. Um, one thing I would urge is, you know, I don't know who exactly is on this webinar, but um, I mentioned something earlier is, you know, there's that technology push and the business 
cool. Um, and there's oftentimes a technology push and policy has to catch up. And I think mm -hmm. right now we are at a very important time where the policy needs to catch up in order for us to share the data we need to with patients and share the data we need to with providers because I know a lot of providers are still scared straight sharing any sensitive data around 42 CFR. And it's a, it's a culture shift right for these providers um, because they've been dinged and they've been taught um, to not do that. So now we're in a place where we're slowly saying, hey, we need to share data in order to give people the best care that they can receive. And um, I think it's gonna take a lot more work from the education level and the policy level. I spent a year and a half working with our providers to build a legal process to enable them to share data with each other um, across the network. And that that was just working with a lot of lawyers and getting a lot of um, folks on board and engaging them and becoming kind of advocates um, to share data so that way they can, you know, treat patients the way that patients should be treated. Yeah, that's, I love that. Hey, Brian, I think one of the things that, back to your original question, which is like if we're dealing with uh, providers or organizations that don't have the capability or are on the other EHRs that aren't certified, um, I think, you know, for better or for worse at Arcadia, we started doing this before the standards were really out there or enforced, right? Uh, we started doing this before meaningful use, which, by the way, solved everything, right? Um, so... With that, we develop proprietary ways of doing that, which you know, in many ways, are <laughs> roll up your sleeves and get in, get in the mud and dig data, right? Um, but it's it's interesting is that I still I still get really frustrated talking with technical people that have never really been in the healthcare environments that go, oh, John, you're a technologist. Why aren't you just streaming the stuff and like why aren't you using APIs for all this stuff? Like that's the cool stuff to do. That's what you should be doing. And the reality is, is that there are so many places that there is data that your customer or a network needs that don't have the APIs, they don't have the EHR, you know, yeah. they're still running on fax machines. Come on, folks, we know that healthcare still runs on fax machines in many places, right? So you have to be flexible and you have to understand that if you, based on your use case again, there is gonna be data that is going to live in areas that is not covered by these latest greatest apis you know currently being fired and you have to figure out how are you going to capture those um you know it makes technologists puke but at the same time it's like oh we're doing another csv extract and sending it across to an sftp i know that's not sexy but your job is not to create sexy technology your job is to get the providers and the, the clinicians and the analysts the data they need to be able to drive whatever they're trying to analyze and you have to roll up your sleeves and do some of this really nasty work still. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, uh, Bridget uh, from the audience is asking a question about whether or not uh, companies should think about using fire models uh, as their internal models. That's a that's a question that I feel like we ask almost every other day. Um, Elise, going back to your, your point about uh, providers being scared to share data, um, 
we we think about a fire first approach um, where you know something like consent that may have a low maturity for fire um, which means that you know you're you can't really rely on it it may not be included as part of uscbi or any enforced standard um, but it's meaningful to shape your information it's meaningful to shape your workflow and your practices according to that um, there's a lot of really smart people uh, that work on the fire working groups that bring that information together that think about the right code sets or the right kind of semantics of the data. Um, so it's an excellent starting point um, to inform your decisions about how to model this data and this information. Yeah. Um, but you, you shouldn't think of uh, fire as being 100% coverage. Uh, Graham Greve, the, the kind of fire chief um, that uh, JC was talking about that started this initiative, um, he himself says that fire really just covers 80% of the use cases that are out there. Um, so you can't expect that this standard is going to cover all healthcare data all the time. Um, it shouldn't form your decisions, but it shouldn't constrain them either. I think, Brendan, furthermore, to dive down just a little more to a technical level around modeling fire internally, um, I wish I was wearing my It Depends t-shirt uh, because <laughs> um, it depends. Okay, in software development, there's a joke that also is a reality is you can solve any problem by one level of abstraction and then a next level of abstraction, right? And if you marry yourself and you commit to the current fire standard as your internal data model, it's going to change and therefore all of your tributaries and all your downstream systems are gonna to have to deal with that. Um, uh, we take a fire-ish approach at Arcadia uh, for two reasons. One, we do an abstraction so that we're able to be able to remap quickly if there are radical changes. And two, if you need high performing systems calculating and pushing terabytes of data, in our case, we push over 50 petabytes of data a month through our systems. Um, Fire is not the most performant format for everything. It's really, really good for your APIs to send out for charts and smart on Fire apps. But if you're trying to do really, really high performance work, you're going to want to reshape that data based on the performance tuning that you need to do for whatever it is, be it heatest measure calculations, risk score calculations, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. So again, it depends. Uh, like Brendan said, we start with look at fire first, and then uh, we do adjustments on that. Our APIs coming out are fire and then we have extensions. But internally, just yeah. to be honest, we it, it really depends. But at the same time, I, I would really recommend that you don't bet on it. You build an abstraction layer in between so you're able to tweak it as it changes at the speed you want to change. That gives you a little flexibility. Yeah, yeah an, an abstraction layer and workflows to capture that information that may be outside of the boundaries of a visit, right? Um, Elise, I, I know uh, Mark uh, in the audience was asking a question about how how do you think about capturing uh, things like social determinants and, and other data that um, may uh, be best understood by folks outside of the doctor's offices, outside of the hospital? Um, how do you think about opportunities for capturing that information um, and yep. pushing it into your system? Um, great question, because I think we we put too much emphasis on the PCP. I think we're moving away from your typical like PCP attribution model in general. I know I haven't seen my PCP for I don't even know who my PCP is anymore. But, um, you know, and so um, I, you know, I think that we, we as patients, consumers, whatever you want to call us, are really looking um, outside to get the care we need when we need it. So when we're looking at SDOH data, 
I highly recommend to try to get all of your providers on the same assessment. Now that's so much easier said than done. There's a lot of great standard assessments out there. What I've found though is that providers tend to tweak them a little bit, which of course is the case, but they tend to tweak them a little bit. So when you're collecting and centralizing that data, it makes it really, really hard to normalize. Um, so getting, you know, looking, getting a library of standard SDOH assessments that exist and starting a committee with different providers and voting on what assessments um, you want to leverage in your community. Now, make sure that you get the people on the ground in that meeting. It's so important to have different levels. You need a case manager. You need um, a community navigator, whatever your title is. Get the person in the front line in that meeting, not just your CTO, not just your CEO, not just your CMO, right? Because they're the ones that talk to the individuals and can understand if an assessment is uncomfortable or if a question is a little too invasive to bring up the first time you're meeting the individual. And also make sure that whenever that whatever assessment you have is not too long and is also able to be done that first visit because to get a patient back in the door is sometimes really hard to do. Yeah. And um, one of one of the things that really excites me about all that, Elise, is that FIRE has become this forcing function in the industry to talk about this kind of data, right? Like with USCBI V2, um, we're now going to be required to capture SOGI, to capture SDOH, to capture this extra data. Um, that was not enforced previously through meaningful use or other mechanisms. Um, and at, for all the reasons that you just outlined, you need to start thinking about how you're capturing, managing, and governing that information um, so that when you're participating in ACR REACH or other uh, government-driven initiatives, uh, that you're able to report out on that information the right way, that you're reaching out to the right kinds of patients, um, that you're actually achieving whole person care. So to me, that's super exciting that we're using yeah. this standard, the specification, almost as a, um, you know, a, a catalyst uh, for changing the way that we deliver care. And I would just add, you know, I, I know that there's not a national program, so to speak, that incentivizes providers necessarily to do those assessments or to capture those Z codes. But if your network can get a grant or anything to do like a mini meaningful use for your providers, it's going to be make a huge difference in that data capturing um, functionality. Yeah. Yeah. Before um, we open up the floor for Q and A, um, I want to just do a quick round of what we're excited about because I think we've been talking about uh, a lot of the scarier parts about fire and just the realities of dealing with this uh, this kind of clinical interoperability. Um, for me, one of the most exciting things about the maturity of fire is we've gone from. Uh, these APIs as a one-way push, as pulling from the EHR, pulling from the, um, the you know the medical record, and showing like flowcharts or just other views of the information, um, and we've pushed to two-way real integration, real interoperability. Um, we've been working with a couple EHRs to push insights, to push our knowledge into the EHR, but then in real time get a feedback loop so that we're able to make corrections. So. Uh, for me, this this kind of bi-directional two-way sync um, using FIRE for what it was really meant for, um, I think is where the industry is going. And it, it gets me really excited because it enables that kind of seamless uh, interoperability, both clinical and technical. Um, yeah, I think I'm with you, what... Brandon. I, Brandon, I think I'm with you on what I'm excited about 
I mean, one, it's it's a format that people are embracing more. It's a format that technologists know how to work with more easily. I mean, yeah, you know, some of us are old enough that we're parsing XML back in 2001, but um, just getting it to a modern format, getting it, getting us having a defined set that is a minimal set that we start with. I know I was talking earlier about how it's not good enough for everything, but at least we're agreeing on that and we're moving forward. It's a step in the right direction. For me, smarter fire apps, I've just, just been waiting for this stuff my entire career. You know, it's like yeah. the ability yeah. to write an app that fires off an EHR that gives a provider a single pane of glass to be able to see what they need to see is what they wanted. They don't want to go to another system. They don't want two logins. You want to be able to fire that right off. And now we're seeing smarter fire apps that aren't a growth chart. Sorry, the growth chart one was cool, but, you know, you show the growth chart for five, 10 years, you got to do something new. So now we're seeing all kinds of cool, smarter fire apps, right? And, you know, I mean, even ourselves, we've built a new, we've taken basically our ability of all this analytics and put it on a smart fire app. And now it's firing right off of Epic, right? You know, it's, that's amazing. And it's, there's no install provider comes in and you've got all of this power in the same pane of glass, which I'm super excited about. So that's that's my pick. How about you, Elise? Um, I guess, you know, jumping off of what JC was saying is smarter fire apps and really being able to deliver data to the consumer in the hands of the consumer. So many times uh, the data has lived in the provider office in their system. And we as consumers, patients, we have not been able to access it. Right. So I think that this opens up a world of possibilities for us to be able to access and act on the on our own healthcare data. Um, I can share a quick story. You know, my brother is autistic and he's nonverbal, and he just switched neurologists. And um, you know, it took my mom about a month to get data to go from his PCP to send it to his new neurologist to the point where you know, they kept asking me, we need to speak to Raymond Cole Grant. And she's like, well, good luck with that. And, you know, she dragged Raymond to the office and he looked at them, grabbed the lollipop and sat back down, um, you know, and finally they transferred the information over. So I really am excited about the possibilities of um, giving patients the power to be able to manage their own data. Yeah. And ultimately, the patient is the, the owner of the data, right? Um, yeah, so the all patient the or, or the person managing that patient, right? Yep. Uh, so let's jump to questions from the audience. Um, we're going to start with a question about what the government can do uh, to further incentivize adoption of Fire APIs or to push maturity. Um, JC, I know this is one of your favorite topics. What do you, what do you think the government <laughs> can do? I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> sorry, Vicki. Love you. Um, I think one of my biggest asks, which is a little bit, which is a little bit wider than fire, is can the government eat their own dog food? Let me repeat: eat your own dog food. If you are requiring vendors to, to support certain schemas and certain formats, hey, this is a new one, fire. Um, and you're requiring us to change the industry to do this, 
then make your programs recognize these formats and accept these formats as legal medical records. If you're doing a RADV audit, RADV audits cost health plans tens of millions of dollars every year, not once, every year. And depending on who your auditor is and depending on what's going on and what program something's coming out of, you can't even use the CCD sometimes. And now we got fire. So now we're going to fire. And is fire recognized as a legal medical record to extract out and generate that chart for a RADV audit or whatever audit you want to pick? It varies across all of these programs. So I would ask that we get across these programs some understanding of if you're asking us as a vendor to adhere to a format, can you get your programs to also align with those formats? so that we stop having armies of people invading practices, doing screen captures and calling that a, a medical record, putting burden on practices, putting burdens on providers. And let's get into whatever century this is, so that we can use machines to pull this data because we've got these APIs now. So I would say better alignment, it would reduce cost, it would reduce burden on providers, and it would get you, frankly, better data in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, with those programs, build programs to help providers support the new standards that are in place, right? A standard's great, but if providers aren't going to use it or can't feed into it, um, then it's not going to it's not going to work. And so, you know, anything that comes new is think about, you know, the ecosystem as a whole and how people are really using it from the beginning to the end. Hey, uh, let me put yeah. one other pitch in there, too, Brendan. Can we get a national patient id just ask oh, i was gonna that was gonna be mine that's gonna be mine jason Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah i mean i i was so so depressed more than i should be for for this kind of issue uh when that died on the vine i mean that that really had legs uh and you know for us to be successful in interoperability fire for any format um having a single identifier for a u.s person yeah. i think would be tremendously helpful yeah. um Another great question. Uh, how do we think about fire extensions or augmentations? Um, how, how should we use those? How should we uh, subscribe to those? Um, I think my quick take, and then um, JC would love yours. Uh, extensions are meaningful. They are a way for you to communicate to the uh, community at large how you're uh, taking the base uh, fire format and building out on top of it. Um, one of the really cool parts about Fire is that it's a specification that is a learning specification. So as vendors, as uh, providers, as everybody contributes to the extension list, um, that set of extensions is considered for the next version um, and adopted based off of uh, voting and, and uptake. Um, so I think it's a really powerful way to build extensibility into a specification. Um, and it's really important that when you're looking at Fire and when you're doing data governance and uh, mapping, that you're able to uh, look at the extensions in a given Fire resource um, and evaluate that before creating your own extension. Um, so if, if nothing else, if you're going to look at extending base Fire objects and, and Fire information, definitely look at the existing set of extensions for a given resource. Yeah, I think taking the question at face value should we assume there will always be fire extensions, augmentations? Yes, because that's how it's designed. And um, again, to your point, don't go out and create them if there's an existing resource or um, 
uh, a way to a way to carry your data. I think the tricky two tricky things that I would just comment on is one, if you're creating extensions and you're not informing the governing body, you're not helping. You got to make sure they understand what you're finding missing and what the use case is in order so that they can at least take it as a consideration for the next implementation guide, right? Um, so I think it's really, really important to be transparent on things that are of high value that you see repeated in your organization. The other is um, that, um, you know, if you create an extension, you're going to have to map it to someone else's extension quite often, and that gets us back into the old map and gap that we've done for years, right? So, Brendan, an yeah. EHR company that you used, used to be with that I've worked with heavily, um, they were they had an extension for uh, risk-based uh, suspecting. We had one as well. Ours were not the same, so we had to sit down and figure out how to make our Lego pieces work together, which we did. But again, it doesn't work right out of the box. So just plan on running into those type of map and gap problems, which honestly, technologists deal with all the time. I think some other yeah. people get hung up on it more than us technologists. Yeah. And Elise, I know recently we were talking about how to think about PCP attribution and, and provider attribution for patients. Um, the care team resource and uh, attribution within FHIR has one set of uh, linkages that really expects a PCP uh, but I know for your organization and, and for how you think about work, that's not necessarily a good fit. So we we would need to build out an extension to be able to handle that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that we're seeing um, it across different kind of community care models and healthcare models in general are kind of pushing towards that community care model where multiple providers, and when I say providers, I mean case managers, social workers, doctors, PCP, you know, um, nurses, right, are caring for that patient. Um, we did a study uh, where we looked at 46,000 New York Medicaid patients with severe mental illness. And out of those 46,000, 11% of them were assigned to a PCP. Five of them saw their PCP, but 65% of them, sorry, 5% of them saw their PCP, and 62% of them saw their behavioral health provider. So I think that goes to say is we're seeing a really uh, shift in the way people are accessing our healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think speaking of access uh, with meaningful use with uh, some of the regulations that have come into place with the Cures Act, there's obviously a big push for EHRs to expose data via fire. Um, but is that true? <laughs> Just because you have an EHR, does that mean that you automatically have a, a set of fire APIs? Uh, JC, yes or no? Uh, no. Um... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, if the salesperson that sold you that has a bullet point that says fire on it, um, you have some more work. Uh, so, for example, things that we've seen, the EHR has fire capabilities. They're, they never installed the fire server. The EHR has fire capabilities. It's not turned on. EHR has fire capabilities. It's the wrong version. It wasn't updated. It has fire capability. The data was never properly mapped and they created new workflows and the data they really want flowing in does not flow into the fire mapping off out of the APIs and they never fixed it. 
And then you get into interesting things that most people don't run into when it's, until it's too, it's too late, which is um, how is it secured and how does that security work? And does that security work the way you expect and how your use case of what you're going to use it for? And then the one which is one of my favorite ones is does it scale based on your usage? Uh, we've run into many EHRs and we've run into even um, enterprise service buses that, you know, large companies, fantastic products that really, really do integration of different uh, clinical sources. And they become a single place that you can plug into to pull data in order to do analytics. And we show up and we go, hey, uh, we're going to pull 4 million patients in the next 10 hours. Uh, can you handle that? And you watch them turn pale. And then they said, uh, that would literally start a fire, F-I-R-E, <laughs> in our server room. So, <laughs> so you have to understand the scalability. And then, because um, a lot of these servers are perfectly fine for doing a patient at a time, but the second you try to use it for any kind of population analytics or any kind of large scale pool, it may not work. And I know that folks out there will go, well, John, what about bulk fire? Bulk fire is evolving I haven't seen it in the wild really working yet in an analytics situation across 2,000 plus sources. Um, uh, I hope it does because it'll make it make it easier for many cases. But again, watch the scalability and look at your use cases. And then last but not least, understand your licensing. There is some EHRs have different APIs. They have the free APIs that come with your license, and then they have these other APIs that are very sexy, that give you really, really even better data, but they charge you per usage. So be careful of that. And if you're a vendor and you're not aware, um, some of those APIs that you want to use that are not the free ones, um, some of the EHRs want to do profit sharing on the use of that API. So part of your margin, your product could be um, cut because you're using those APIs. So just make sure you read the fine print on the legal documents on how you're using them. Yeah, I know the other um, facet that a lot of our clients have run into is around security. Um, fire has a really great model for resource level security with smart on fire, uh, but it doesn't describe row level security. Um, so if you're dealing in a complex IDN, if you have many different practices, sources of truth, um, some of that may be behavioral data, some of that may be data that's sensitive information and you need a method to mark that data as secure control its access um, so that uh, you know, you're not showing the, the inappropriate uh, clinical data to the wrong provider. Um, the other little plug I just want to make, uh, CMS has started an initiative called the Lantern Initiative. Um, it is a essentially a web crawler, um, a site where it's going out and just pinging uh, this US CDI set of APIs for folks that claim to have a certified EHR um, so if you are um, a provider and you've purchased uh, a certified bit of technology of uh, EHR, um, they're kind of double checking you to make sure that your uh, fire APIs are actually up running and they're constantly pinging them uh, to make sure that you're not just turning them on for auditing and then turning it off, uh, basically to, to check down on information blocking um, to help with patients. That um, is really good cool to know. Website. I was not aware of that. I will let my provider community know that. Um, the downside is uh, because the current standard, and this is changing later this year with the Cures Act, um, just requires a set of APIs. Uh, this 
you'll you'll see that there's a lot of gaps that folks are still on fire uh our dstu v1 um and not r4 uh so i think um this will become a lot more powerful towards the end of the year uh but it's it's a really cool tool that uh, cms is pushing out there awesome all right, I think we have time for one last question. Um, for uh, fire, for uh, the path forward, uh, JC, where where do you think this is going to change in five years? What do you think is going to be the biggest innovation in fire? Um, it's going to work. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's going to continue to evolve, and I think that we're going to get to a point where these APIs just become second nature, and the need for a lot of this grunt work that we do in order to make connectivity across different systems, um, it's just going to it's just going to be commoditized, right? And yeah. that allows us to fo focus on non-plumbing non digging in the mud work and really focus on the business value activities, right? You know, trying to figure out how to get one piece of data here to here and get the mapping right is um, is not what the business is trying to solve. They're trying to solve other higher level problems. So I think that we're going to see this continue to evolve. I think you're going to watch the extensions and the real use of fire make fire even grow more robust, which is going to be fantastic. I think you're going to see better technology come out to make it faster and easier. Um, and then there's a lot of really cool vendors out there doing things with fire right now. You're only going to see that grow. And like, you know, if you really ask me to go into La La Land, you're going to start seeing more and more people being able to write quick apps that can run on fire. And you're going to see you're going to see a, a proliferation of more and more apps coming out off of fire because it's just going to be a standard that people trust versus you know, trying to figure out in a CCD, what oil am I looking for and which template am I looking for? Right? Yeah. Elise, how about you? Um, okay, can you, sorry, can you repeat the question again? What, uh, where do you think fire is going to go in five years? Man. Um, you know, I've learned from my mom, if I don't have anything insightful to say, then leave it to the person who said it before. So I'm going to leave it to JC and I'm just going <laughs> to like do a um, plus, you know, plus one on his answer. Plus one. Yeah. I, I think from my end, uh, beyond what JC said, I'm just super excited to see bi-directional apps proliferate and, and just a wildfire of, uh, of these applications spread across the U.S. So a wildfire. I'm trying yeah. to end on a pun. I'm trying to end on a pun. All right. Well, hey, thank you, everyone, for your time. Elise, JC, thank you so much. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Elise. Thank great you. you. Thank you, guys. This is great. Brendan, JC, Elise, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your insights on this topic, and for giving us a few good laughs with all your fire puns. And to all of you listening in, thank you for joining us today. Uh, there are additional resources in the show notes. We have an article on FIRE's role in the healthcare industry today. Uh, we have some information, product information, about our integrations with Epic. And you can see other episodes of Vital. Sign up for them to attend live and participate or listen to episodes on demand. You can go to arcadia.io slash vitals for all of that. 
Again, thank you all so much, and we'll see you next time.